There's really only one way we can begin an episode like this, and it is allegedly, and then open quote, and then we'll close the quote at the end of the show, because this one is going to be nuts. So we're using, going back to the old snooker, allegedly bringing that back a little bit. <laughs> this, we are, from here till I close the quote, we are protected under allegedly. Mm-hmm. Huh. And if you just say it... That means it works. Like, we definitely won't get in trouble just because we're saying that. I assume so. <laughs> and do we put three dots behind allegedly? Because that's a big pet peeve of mine when, you, when you're, like, breathing that space. Like, yeah, wait, we need an ellipsis. Do we dot, need an ellipsis? Dot, like, just the three. Yeah. I... So you didn't really do legal research on this shit? Come I... on. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to Tim Bell Pod, where we <laughs> tell the story of past and past past pro wrestlers that oh, sense, right? oh yeah. yeah all right okay uh, all right first i was like at first like man what are you even talking about <laughs> you're are having you, a stroke this early are you having an ellipses <laughs> uh i am nick alexander and i am skimming 25 percent off the top of this podcast alongside micah j loving i'm doing like five percent because you know i'm respectful and we are in the manning cave with the man scout Mr. Jake Manning. And I'm the one doing all the work while you guys are doing the skimming. So just let you know. So I'm the one actually taking all the bumps. Uh, You guys are making me pay rent on my own domicile. (laughs) It's so nice, though, just to mm, get that. And then I have to pay for training, even though I'm making you money from this training. It's it's a whole rigmarole. And I'm going to force you to sleep with Colt Cabana so that he mentions us on The Art of Wrestling. <laughs> can, I, can I sleep with Conrad Thompson? All right, fine. All right. <laughs> so today we're covering our first Patreon requested person. Thank you, Margaret Taylor. This is how we started? Like, yeah. talk about sleeping with Conrad Thompson? Is this the, the content that she requested for us? <laughs> oh, she knows what she's getting into. Okay, just all think right. about that visual, everybody. Just think about that. Mm-hmm. So today, we're talking about one of the most polarizing people in pro wrestling history, a paradoxical figure who did more for women's wrestling than just about anyone in history, while at the same time causing enormous damage, not just to women's wrestling, but to the women in it. To some, she was the first goddess of the squared circle. To others, she was the most evil woman to walk the planet. She was the fabulous Moolah. Mary Lillian Ellison was born July 22nd, 1923 in Kershaw County, South Carolina. She was the youngest of 13 kids, which is actually the exact same thing as my mom. Kershaw, South Carolina has got a uh, rich wrestling history. Not only is it birth uh, place of fabulous moolah, but also Kershaw, South Carolina is... Um, where I wrestled Steve Carino for an hour Broadway. Ooh. It is both our only legit hour Broadway. Ooh. I had a worked hour Broadway with Team Action. 
And then he had a worked hour Broadway with Doug Williams. Oh, that, mm. so there is uh, a little bit of history there in, in Kershaw. And actually, that match is available on my six disc DVD set, which Ooh. you can get with one of the Patreon tiers. So we snuck in a little Patreon plug in the middle of all this as well. Did you and Steve do Cats or Oklahoma? Oh. Oh. I'm just going to keep making the sound for three hours. <laughs> oh. All right. Throughout this podcast episode, I'm going to be providing fun facts from Mula and May's R video shoot because Jake didn't listen to it and Nick didn't because they are smarter and have lived better lives. As you will see, the R video description is one of the most fun and entertaining shoot interviews you will ever see with two pure legends of pro wrestling and Johnny May Young and Hall of Famer Fabulous Moolah. The, it's a truly tremendous shoot because you get to hear questions you've never hit, heard in a shoot like, how did World War II affect the wrestling business? <laughs> <laughs> um, some people want to talk shit on certain message boards and say it's one of the worst shoots ever up there with Dana Dameson, don't even, do you know her, Jake? Uh, she was a porn star that Rob <laughs> did a shooting interview with one time. Carlos Colon, Arn Anderson, I did, does he have a bad shoot? Yeah, because uh, he doesn't break kayfabe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, break kayfabe. he's one of them. Uh, Baron Von Raschke's, I'm guessing that's another kayfabe one. No, that was a high spots one. So <laughs> yeah. he was just weird. <laughs> he was slipping in and out of character. Like yeah. he was, like we recorded it very late at night, and then he would just slip in and out of character, and that's when I would wake up and <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's going on? This is weird. Uh, and, and the uh, last one listed, Jules Strongbow. Oh, screw you guys if you didn't list Jimmy Snooker shooter interview as the worst of all time. Yeah, that's true. True. Uh, all right, so throughout this episode, I'm going to be telling you really amazing things, and it's going to be the Did You Know Nick segment. So for the first one, did you know, Nick, that within the first 30 seconds of the shoot interview that Rob Feinstein attempts to introduce Mula and May by using the adjective of reverent, but instead of saying that, he says irrelevant. No, not irrelevant, which would be saying Mula and May are pointless and no one cares about them anymore, which is mean. But no, he said irrelevant, a word that does not fucking exist. So not only does Rob not say the adjective he originally intended, but he says a word that totally shits all over Mula and May, and he fucking butchers the pronunciation out of it. But this is how words are made, so I say we start this now. Irrelevant, a highly dignified but emitting an odd odor you can't quite place. I'm surprised you didn't introduce them as women that were around in the time when the movie The Revenant took place. <laughs> that would have been a far better introduction. Growing up outside of Columbia, South Carolina, Mula would have to deal with tragedy at a very young age with her mother dying of cancer when Lillian was just eight years old. Not long after that, her father began taking her to pro wrestling shows, and Lillian always liked the matches and the experience well enough, but it was when she saw women's champion Mildred Burke that the fire to become a pro wrestler was lit. So, you know, blame Mildred for all of this. Which, uh, did you know, Nick, even in the shoot interview, Mae Young says that Mildred Burke kind of sucks. Wow, really? Yeah, I mean, she doesn't say those words, but she's kind of like, she wasn't the greatest wrestler. It's like, shit, man. She shits on everybody in this but, thing. Uh, you know, the same could be said with, with Moolah, but th we're talking about, like, Mildred being the placeholder. Much like Hogan, you know? Like, Hogan, not the best in the ring, but when you thought professional wrestling, Hulk Hogan. Yeah. It, it, this, all the stuff that Mildred had to deal with, with 
her fucking hot garbage husband, uh, we'll get into as it. we'll get into probably the next few minutes. <laughs> Apparently, her father disapproved of Mula becoming a wrestler so much that at the age of 14, she done R-U-N-N-O-F-T to get married to a 21-year-old Walter Carroll. Now at the ripe old age of 15 years old, Lillian had her daughter, Marionette Carroll, and not long after she had her baby, she divorced her husband and left her kid with a friend so she could set off to become a pro wrestler. That's kind of a common theme with women that got into professional wrestling during that time, as we discussed with our episode of Babs Wingo mm-hmm. and Ethel Johnson, is, is these women who got pregnant very early or were single mothers um, striving to figure out how they're going to come up with income to be a single mother in the 50s and 60s and and early 70s and just clueless. And then they stumble upon professional wrestling as a main source of income and were able to raise their kids with a brutal travel schedule, a physically demanding business, and then still providing for a family at the end of the day. I mean, that's... (sighs) That's how a lot of these women get into it. So it's, you know, kudos to these women for being that tough in that era and be seeing this as like, okay, this is a viable career opportunity for me to make real money yeah. to provide for my family, but not just like survive, but kind of thrive in some instances. Lillian began her wrestling career with Mildred Burke's husband, Billy Wolf. And we touched on Billy back in episode 16. If you listen to that, you know Wolf was how you say human garbage. Wolf was notorious for making the women he employed sleep with him, hanging their careers and livelihoods over their heads until they did. He'd pressure, if not outright force them to sleep with other promoters, all while skimming a good chunk of money off their pay. Billy Wolf is the Phantom Menace to the Moolah trilogy. And also, too, it's a complicated past. He was the one pushing for women's wrestling and opening the doors for these women to have these opportunities to even begin with. But it is very much pimp and prostitute-esque in the sense that you take somebody who is downtrodden. Like I said, a lot of these women were single mothers trying to find some sustainable income for their children, for their family, and provide for them. And here comes this man who's offered them opportunity, work, income, a, a better life far better life than they could for any other source of income but at the same time too not only is it physically demanding but abusive on all levels it's the whole thing of yeah you got to commend him for doing this and opening this up but it's just like or he just saw an opening for it that would make him money and he knew he could exploit it and take take advantage of it yeah i think we covered it pretty well in the last episode the the many aspects of it the good bad and indifferent and we'll probably have a deeper discussion of that a little bit later (laughs) on i'm all about i'm all about the teasers this episode (laughs) i'm all about the teasers for an episode they're already listening to (laughs) But while working with Billy, uh, Lillian did get to compete with women like her future BFF, Mae Young, Cecilia Blevins, and even her hero, Mildred Burke. After about a year, Mula stood up to Billy Wolf and left his company, burning that bridge forever. Lillian eventually met Jack Pfeffer, who is an interesting guy and one of the first people to publicly expose pro wrestling. He was the one who asked Lillian why she wrestled, and she said for the Mula. And it was Pfeffer who gave her the moniker Slave Girl Moolah. 
Did you know, Nick, that a wrestling license was a whopping $2 back in the day? <laughs> How much is it now, Jake? Well, in some states, it's 20 bucks. Some well, states, it's 30 okay. 40 So with inflation, that's on bar. Inflation? Yeah. <laughs> so by the early 1950s, Moolah was a valet for the nature boy, Buddy Rogers. Oh. However, that pairing ended badly when Buddy just refused to quit trying to fuck her. <laughs> so... <laughs> Ric Flair really stole everything. <laughs> uh, oh, buddy, buddy's also kind of hot garbage too. Like, <laughs> uh, he's. Uh, uh, that's I like when be you say things and you insult someone, but we can hear you smiling about it. <laughs> yeah, there's just not a lot of good redeeming qualities to, to Buddy Rogers. So again, Mula severed yet another tie with a very major name in pro wrestling. Mula would then valet for Tony Alivius, a.k.a. Elephant Boy, who was not an animal. He was a human being. John Merrick, boom. So Olivius was Mexican, but he had very dark skin, which led to some drama because Mula would kiss him on the cheek during his ring entrance, you know, in the 50s. Mm. Uh, to show how fucking stupid racists are, uh, at a one show in Oklahoma City, a man thought Tony was black. So he tried to stab Mula after he she kissed Tony. They don't even know what they hate. They just know they hate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because, you know, he just, he has a knife on him at all times. <laughs> just in case just, I mean, a white woman yeah, kisses yeah, a black. Just, you know, if I see something black and white, I'm going to stab it. <laughs> Break glass if you see a white woman kiss a black. Imagine if you took that man dumped him into 2019 and then oh, showed no. him wrestling tents twitter feed oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, he would lose his mind he would burn this country to the ground after leaving pfeffer's promotion mula went to boston to work for tony santos and paul bowser and at this point mula had begun training girls and it was a huge deal that paul bowser agreed to use mula's girls instead of billy wolf's if it weren't for this, there's a chance Mula's career would have tanked. Well, Wolf wasn't booking her. In fact, Wolf blackballed Mildred Burke from American Wrestling after their divorce, so he wouldn't have given two fucks about Mula. On top of that, she had bad blood with, with NWA's biggest draw. So basically, she had to form her own company of women. Vince McMahon Sr.'s Capital Wrestling would also jump on the Mula train in 55, booking not just Mula, but also using her girls from her camp. On September 18, 1956, as part of Vince Sr.'s territory, Mula won a 13-woman battle royal to win the vacant World's Women's Championship. Yeah, woo. <laughs> but like a lot of belts back in the day, she wasn't always recognized as the women's champion, mostly because the NWA was still the most important promotion in the country, and their champions were the champions. Well, that's kind of the same thing that happened the WWE. WF world title and then that whole stipulation transition from Buddy Rogers to Bruno San Martino and then claiming that, that there, yeah. New York's belt is a world championship and we're no longer recognizing the NWA one as, as our world belt and that whole split off from there is very similar to what obviously was going on with the female title as well as just kind of that split that like no 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 New York this is a world belt as well this isn't just a territory belt this is a world championship it was vince senior who gave moolah the name the fabulous moolah and she began a title run of 10 years maybe kind of sort of with moolah's title runs as well as some of the terrible things she did as well as some of the good things she did 
There is a lot of kayfabing and exaggeration, if not outright lying. Yeah. It was pro wrestling in the 50s and 60s. The record keeping wasn't great, and kayfabe was alive and well. Well, yeah. the whole reason NWA existed was to launder money for <laughs> mobsters. <laughs> well, to which I would reply to your statement, Nick. Duh. <laughs> it came from carnivals. Like, it came to carnivals, went to the mafia, and you want everybody to be a saint? Like, no. It, and then you get to the 80s, and they're still threatening to pull guns on Vince McMahon Jr. I mean, it's never been safe until, like, now when it's corporate and they're trying to court sponsors like Coca-Cola <laughs> and Ford Motor Company. And even still, you still have your leftover outlaws that used to wear Confederate flags in the ring that write TV every Tuesday. I mean, did, isn't there a story of Harley Race bringing a gun to kill Hulk Hogan? Everybody brought a gun. Show. Everybody <laughs> brought a gun. The Halliburton briefcase, like a lot of the wrestlers had them, like when you were a big deal, you had the Halliburton. Yeah. I would probably say 80% of all wrestler <laughs> Halliburtons had a gun I just heard Eric Bischoff tell a story about uh, Paul Orndorff in a booking meeting was uh, (laughs) just sat down and he's like, oh, he's sitting down uncomfortably and they just put his gun and slapped (laughs) it down as if he was sitting on his wallet. I'm like, "Uh, I'm going to be sitting down for a while. I don't want to sit on my wallet and sit uneven. Let me just take it out and put that on the table. No, he did that with a gun at WCW. (laughs) It was a spine and a nine millimeter. After June Byers retired in 1964, Moolah was finally recognized as the official undisputed women's world champion as Capital, now turned WWWF, was the rising dominant promotion. Moolah eventually lost on September 17, 1967 to Betty Boucher, winning the title back just weeks later. She also traded the belt with Yakiko Tomei during a tour of Japan in 68. In all my research of those those dates and stuff, it seems like some pop up with actual sources and then some don't. And then, like Nick said earlier, just like the records back then were not good. Mula's, when she lost them, it was usually she'd lose it, get it back within a day, right? Yeah. Like yeah, every yeah, single time. Well, it, she did not lose it for long. Some of those things were done to pop the town. Like it's a situation like, hey, you know, Allentown's been doing really well. Let's go ahead and do a switch. But we got TV coming back around. Uh, we'll switch it back when we get to Scranton or in Philadelphia. So we'll we'll do something in Allentown for the house show because they've been, you know, the crowds have been building, making feel a little more special. So that way we get more people back the next time. But by the time she's already back around, she's already wearing the belt as it is. And then some of these people, like, their lives are not invested. Like, yeah. some people's lives get very invested in what goes on on Monday night and this and their feelings about it and how they report about it and what podcasts they do about it and what to say on Twitter about it you know so people are like oh okay they switched the belt oh she's got the belt again i don't know that happened i just <laughs> you know it's just like nobody put that much thought to it and yeah. sometimes like you know going to japan even as late as in the 90s wrestling promotions like yeah do whatever you want in japan doesn't matter nobody's seeing that anyways yeah. not understanding the complexities of tape trading and then the growth of the internet and 
you know, newsletters and that information does get out even as far as the late 90s. So back in the 50s, 60s and 70s, a title switch in Japan meant nothing. <laughs> Just as long as you win it back before you, yeah. you fly back on the plane, it makes no difference. But God, after 28 years, three, maybe four of those occurring yeah. fucking moolah. <laughs> but the, the, well, you look at Bruno San Martino. Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah. It, but it, we it, like Bruno, Jake. But <laughs> it's all about stability. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's all about you know, Bruno would have held it longer if he didn't, you know, have some of the health issues mm -hmm. and probably wanted to go home and spend some time with his wife. Stan Hansen wouldn't have broke his fucking neck. <laughs> yeah, all, all of those things. And but you look at someone like Mulu, who's like, no, I'm all about the money and wrestling. Yeah. You'll hang on to it forever. If Bruno San Martino was the same exact way, Bruno might have had a 20 year title <laughs> reign. I don't know. That was the difference. Bruno was like, get the belt off me. Get it off me. Mula was like, here's a picture of your kids. <laughs> I know where they sleep. I'll keep the belt. Thank you. So on July 1st, 1972, Mula became the first woman allowed to wrestle at the Madison Square Garden, which had previously banned women's wrestling. In fact, Mula helped overturn the ban on women's wrestling in the entire state of New York, with the New York State Athletic Commission lifting the band June of 72. Now, Jake, how could someone wrestle at Madison Square Garden even though, and let me check my notes here, even though they have a vagina? Mm -hmm. I know, it's, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure the commission, when the first other times they try and do it, he was running down alongside like that mm -hmm. famous picture of that man trying to stop the woman from running the Boston Marathon because he's afraid yeah. that all that long distance running, she her innards were just going to fall out because the women were so fast, frail. So I'm sure there's a famous picture somewhere of a female walking to the ring at Madison Square Garden and a commission going to grab her ring jacket and prevent <laughs> her from getting in the ring. But yeah, New York State Athletic Commission, kind of squirrely kind of garbage now yeah, yeah like i mean the, the interactions that i've had with with those guys been awesome great do their job fantastic always make small talk with them pretty cool guys you know if you got your all if you've dotted all your i's and crossed all your t's it's smooth sailing no problem whatsoever and a lot of times they're there to protect the fans like you know and make sure that their interest is you know, taken care of in the sense that the people that were advertised are going to show up. The show's not going to start at a, at a different time than it says. Like it's not going to start early, and people would miss the wrestling. So there's there's all the, all of those things that go into that. They do a pretty good job, and then also too, they require you to have doctors on hand, which I always appreciate. And you know, especially if I'm going to get hurt. It's not like wrestling in West Virginia and. The nearest hospital is 45 minutes away. So I, I, I appreciate those things, but then just how they have, you know, treated MMA and like, oh, we can't yeah, have it whatsoever. And, and, you know, like they, they don't make big moves very well, but I think a lot of the smaller stuff is very good. But some of their bigger moves, much like this, are a little over overdone. Yeah, just in the short time span that they have gotten MMA, just like weigh-ins, just every little nitpicky thing to ruin big fights that everybody's really fucking excited for. And yeah, the, the reputation of uh, the New York Commission in the MMA world is pretty shit already. In the late 70s, Mula bought the rights to the Women's Championship to which the men running wrestling replied, you could have just had it for free. We literally do not care. <laughs> Mula would lose her belt to Evelyn Stevens in 78 before winning it right back and then going undefeated for another six years. 
In 83, Vince McMahon Jr. was buying all things wrestling under the sun, and Moolah sold him the rights to her Women's World Championship, which led to Moolah becoming the first WWF Women's Champ. Put on Wrestling Talk in 1990 on a public access show in Boston. She said she didn't do that. And now we're getting into the rock and wrestling connection, the era that brought not just pro wrestling to the mainstream, but also women's wrestling into the mainstream as well. Cindy Lauper had taken some time off from just having fun to feud with Captain Lou Albano that led to Brawl to End It All, July 23rd of 84, live on MTV. Yeah. I remember when they used to just play music. In a trial-by-combat-style match, Cindy and Lou picked wrestlers to represent them. Moolah teamed up with Cap, and Wendy Richter teamed up with Cindy Lauper. Wendy Richter was a megastar because of all this exposure, some say on par with Hulk Hogan at the time. At Brawl to end it all, Wendy would take on Moolah, the 28-year reigning champion, which we just said wasn't true, yeah. uh, in a match that I'll say technically happened. Moolah rolled up Wendy for the three count. However, as part of the roll-up, Moolah's shoulders were actually down. So when Wendy put her shoulder up, Moolah was down for the count. So Wendy won the WWF women's title. It's just like she can't even get like a good, clean, decisive win. It's got to be a tricky, sneaky reveal to the crowd. And it, I, Jake doesn't like my thing no, here. No, the Harley Race did that same exact fucking finish I know, but it's like with Ric Flair. You want to pop the crowd as much as you want for this big MTV shit. Do you really want confusion and like, what happened? I don't know. It's just, I, I wanted something big and decisive. No. Not this. What the fuck was that? Because the pop isn't when the three count happens. The pop I is when, when the person gets it. When they announce it, that's yeah. where you want the explosion I to know, be. But you could have multiple pops. They would have, They would pop every time. Not for the big one. The big oh one is, God. you want that confusion. You want that hubbub. <laughs> and your winner is... Wendy Richter. Like, that's... <laughs> trust me, I I have played that trick before, and it works like a fucking charm every single fucking time. I mean, I know it can work, but it's just like for, for it to build up to this, yeah. I feel like it should have been... I don't know. Yeah, but then, you know, like I said, Moolah's got to put her over clean, but also two notes you don't have, what? you don't have a return. Yeah, it's true. You don't have a return match. You're going to get that one pop, and then it's over and it's done, and then, then who's Wendy going to wrestle? Oh, yep. Do you, do you have do you have opponents lined up for Wendy right now? Because no, you don't. Because you're basically inventing the road that she, Wendy Richter is going to be traveling on. And like you said, some people think she was a superstar. Oh, I am one of those some people <laughs> because I clearly remember the cartoon, yeah. the, the card games, all with right. She was clearly right next to Hulk Hogan. They were positioning wrestling to go mainstream and something they finally finally figured out as of a couple years ago if you really want to be fully mainstream you want to fully penetrate the entire world you can't be ignoring females in an athletic competition and they were ready to do that in the 80s when all of this was going on they were they were set up they had their female hulk hogan they had wendy Richter. She was positioned to be that. And we're like, hey, we're going to penetrate the market. We're going to have Hulk Hogan for the little boys. And we got Wendy Richter for all the little girls. And then also, too, you know, Moolah, can, they can take it all around the horn and have all the rematches and, and, and go all the way around while we still got Cindy and have a return match. We got WrestleMania come up and we can have a return there. 
Because that's what we're building to right now. So it was it was laid down, and we could have had respectable female wrestling far earlier than what we did. I mean, it was the tracks were late. Now, as far as like the talent pool, it was a little weak, and, and it could have fell in on its face I mean, because had, of that. You had Sherry coming up. You had a pretty young Luna, at least training at this point. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, I mean, uh, jumping bomb angels. Yeah, I mean, you get Judy Martin, you get Heart of the Glamour Girls. I mean, you look at, I think it was like Survivor Series '87. There was uh, all female uh, Survivor Series match. So those are all seven women that could have, yeah. you know, gone up against Wendy Richter. That didn't happen. Nope. So after losing the title to Richter, Mula would be in Lilani Kai's corner February 18th, 1985, as she faced Wendy Richter with her pal Cindy Lauper ringside. And as part of the finish to this match, Mula attacked Cindy, choking her, causing Wendy to come to her aid. When she did, Mula popped her in the face, allowing Lilani to take control, roll Wendy up for the win, setting up a rematch at WrestleMania 1. At WrestleMania 1, again, Cindy Lauper and the fabulous Moolah would be in their girls' corners uh, with Wendy getting the win and regaining the title. As we said, Wendy was one of the most over people in the company. You could argue she was the co-main event for WrestleMania 1. Definitely brought to end it all. But when it came to getting paid, there was a huge difference between her and the men's because obviously we deserve more pay for lugging around these big old dicks. Uh, Someone too sweet me. Uh, oh, we're doing that. that right, we did it. I didn't want to do a high five, but too sweet's cool. Wendy was pressuring Vince with a raise to which I assume Vince tore a picture of Susan B. Anthony up in her face. Oh. Or maybe he was just like... I'm not fucking giving you more money because I'm a wrestling promoter. I know a <laughs> shakedown when I fucking hear one. Classic wrestling promoter. And I've heard a lot of shooter interviews and people talk about Wendy Richter at this time and like, oh, she just got a big head. And uh, the, 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 that becomes typically the attitude like, oh, she was believing her own hype when really she's just making a serious claim like, hey, I'm positioned next to Hulk Hogan. Exactly. On all of these these avenues. I'm asking for m- more money. Not even equal pay. Just yeah. some more. That's what it, it turns into that with so many people, like Jake said, talking about it. It's like, she wanted Hulk Hogan money. I was like, I, I'm, I'm just she, sure she just wanted a little bump. Can I get a bump? Because she knows her worth, she's a problem. And that, and that's always the way wrestling is, male or female. If you know your worth and you demand your worth, like, oh, this guy's got a big head. Like, I have recently gone up in my booking fee. And when I lay it out for people, they're like, oh, I can't believe you want that much. And I'm like, well, I'm I'm worth that much. Yeah, go back and listen to Tim Bell Pod, bitch. Yeah, like, I'm going to mention your show and, like, some of my podcasts. And I have a Twitter following, Instagram. I'm, I'm, I probably even cut a promo with The Tent, who I hate. Um, <laughs> He's a fucking dick. To, to get over your show and let people know that your show is happening, to which you can get out and push out. So I'm giving you... I'm doing work ahead of time at the show and I'm going to work very hard and try to give you the best match on the show that, that I can and how it's positioned. And yeah, she's just asking for, for more pay. She's just asking for compensation. And of course, the wrestling promoters, when they hear that, like, oh, this person's bleeding me dry. This person has attitude. And I hear this all the time also, too. I've heard this with female wrestlers a lot. 
you'll talk about a girl, like we'll be talking about booking somebody for WrestleCon or Queens of Combat, and people are like, oh, I hear she has an attitude. Every time I hear that, I go, okay, well, who said that? Yeah. Yep. And then I hear that name, and then I go, oh, <laughs> I've heard this guy talk about this other woman that says she has an attitude. And I'm like, mm, this guy probably got turned down yeah. by this. So that's so every time that I hear a girl has an attitude, quote unquote, I always have to run it through and then line everything up and then figure out who said it and then be like, no, 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 this person, I've talked to this person, I know this person, this person's a good person. The person that says that this girl has an attitude is uh, got turned down by her. But also, too, there are... There are divas, but there's also male divas as as well. Trust me, I... I am one, no? <laughs> Colt Cabana wants things done a certain way, and I and I and after working with him for a very long time, I know how those things are, and I will deliver those things, but sometimes it's like a situation of like, oh, do I really have to do this? And the, the, there are those like that, male and female, yep. and sometimes when you're just trying to get through, you're like, oh, this person has an attitude, like... Colt does not have an attitude. He just wants things done a certain way because we're at the end of the day, we're artists. Realizing Wendy would just waste Vince's money on her periods, he came up with the scheme and a match was booked for November 25th, 1985 when Wendy Richter would face the spider lady. Now I've heard Wendy say she didn't know it was Moolah, which I think is just her blurring the lines of like old school, keeping kayfabe. I've also heard Wendy say she clearly knew it was Moolah because how many people do you lock up with and their body feels like packing peanuts? At the end of the day, I think she knew it was Moolah. She even has this quote, All I knew was with Moolah, I've got to look out for myself. She'll try to hurt you. She'll try to pin you. And I knew she couldn't pin me. She couldn't. But what I didn't count on was the referee getting paid off. During this match which people refer to as the original screw job. Wendy gets rolled up for an inside cradle and clearly kicks out at one. <laughs> but Steve Mazzagatti over there hits the mat two more times, the bell rings, and Wendy, Jesse Ventura, Gorilla Monsoon, and the crowd collectively are like, what the fuck? It's a gorilla kind of... He, he's like, what? 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 And then if you, I listened to it multiple times because I didn't know if I missed it, but Jesse just like doesn't say anything for yeah, 90 I, seconds. Yeah, I feel he like just, he's like, processing it or he something. He does yeah. not understand. Like it, it's it's straight up like, what the fuck, I, man? He probably has enough uh, love for the boys type of thing in him where he was like, she just got fucked yep. over and he had, he made a decision. Do I like leave out of protest or like, you know, I'm sure he was very conflicted. I would kill for the camera on Jesse while it happened yeah, with him yeah, just yeah. throwing his arms up over and over and looking around. <laughs> looking I'm sure, I'm sure he was fuck. mad. Yeah. And one of the messy thing about this whole situation is, is that those who labeled Wendy as having an attitude and believing her own hype, those same people point to this match <laughs> as being the match where Mula won over Vince Jr. Like this was uh, just the proof would, that, that Vince was uh, in bed with the right person in the fabulous Mula. And her, her loyalty to Vince Jr. was solidified and their loyalty to each other was solidified. Because I can already see how this is going down. Vince is just like, probably goes to Mula. Because the part of the reason why people like Moolah and Billy Wolf get power is that 
like I said, you have someone like Vince McMahon who's got a million different things he's worried about. He's trying to promote these towns. He's trying to get TV. He's trying to get these advertisers and sponsors. And then what you're going to do for pay-per-view. And all, and all these things are going on. The last thing you want to worry about is like, all right, I need a women's match. Um, I want some different women. Uh, okay, I got to call. But I want a women's tag match as well. So I got to call four different women, align them, and then travel. When really, if you want women... I'll just pick up the phone once and go to Moo like, hey, I need a tag match. And she goes, all right, I'm going to have so-and-so and so-and-so on this date. All right, good, bye. And that's the end of it. Yeah. They just want to make it as, as simple and as streamlined as possible. That is when you're building a large entity like WWE, WWF, that is being able to streamline something like that is a joy. Especially back then. Yeah, especially back then when you're dealing everything over the phone. So the fact that, you know, Moolah has provided this service and was probably one of those people that like here is Wendy Rick presented Wendy to Vince Vince saw dollar signs and all things he could do and was just like okay Mula you, you hit a home run by bringing this person to me thank you so much and then all of a sudden now she wants more money and she doesn't want the check to go to Mula he goes oh now I gotta take it now I got instead of just paying paying Mula for these women I now have to pay Mula for her girls and I gotta pay Wendy and then what's that gonna do and then I gotta deal with this drama and then she they need different dressing rooms because they're gonna get along I'll just I'll just stick with Mula and I'll cut this one person out so I can keep this pipeline going and you know for Vince it's just like all right I'll, I'll just stick with Mula because yeah. you've made my job easy and then also too like Vince is probably going to Mula and having conversations like you brought this girl to me and now she's shaking me down yeah and then Mula's like we'll tell you what why don't we do this and then probably laid out this whole plan and Vince is like I like it I appreciate you solving this headache of mine yeah so that's where probably Vince's head was at with his entire thing. And probably it was like, you know, Mula, I really appreciate you handling this situation that I had. We've secured the belt, taken care of this, and now we can get this person who's shaking me down for more money and we can just push him out and I'll go forward with you and all of your girls. Yeah. With this one, it was a pin screw job and it looked like shit and you can see it and you can't really get around that. But he learned do a submission screw job you can just say it was yeah, verbal yeah, yeah. you just say you just oh yeah 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 i heard the ref heard him the ref heard him after the weird three count there's a big scuffle i would say half of it is working and then once the ref hands the belt to mula the other half is for real <laughs> like she's really taking some swings at mula the, the final shot of the match that you see she is pissed as she fuck is staring she, a hole through the hard yeah. cam it is amazing and apparently Wendy walked to the back, didn't change, grabbed her shit, flew home, and never wrestled for WWF again. And if you're curious, on the RF video shoot interview, which would have been one of the most interesting parts that could have been of this, when Rob brings it up, Moolah's just kind of like, well, I saw the actual spider lady in the back, and um, I was like, oh, I'm just going to take your mask, and then, because Wendy wouldn't give me a title shot, and I just went out there, and uh, yeah, I won. Jesus. And then Rob doesn't follow up on the one count or anything that would have been juicy and interesting, and it's garbage. <laughs> Mula's probably holding a gun at his ball sack. <laughs> After screw jobbing Wendy, Mula held the title for two years, aside from a six day reign by the great Velvet McIntyre during a tour of Australia in 86. However, Sherry Martell would win the title for Mula July 24th of 87 in a match we discussed on Sherry's episode. And it was also Sherry versus Mula as team captains at the first ever Survivor Series with Mula's team getting the win. 
So from there, the women's title would be lost to Rockin' Robin, then deactivated, brought back for the Alundra Blaze era, tossed in a trash can, and deactivated (laughs) until the Attitude era. And speaking of the Attitude era, Moolah and her best pal Mae Young would essentially be a, a comedy team and May always crushed it, but I felt like Mula always kind of felt it was beneath her, which in fairness, almost everything they asked her to do was kind of beneath anybody. Well, maybe even take a step back, it gets deactivated. Here's maybe conspiracy theory, speculation. Yeah, let's get into it. It goes into deactivation. Well, obviously, Mula is getting up in years i'm sure Mm -hmm. vince is probably like trying to find his next wendy richter that's going to play along a little bit better hence why you're taking swings at cherry and rock and robin so you have moolah but you don't want moolah to hold it but moolah clearly wants to hold it (laughs) do you think that maybe she's like you know and vince is probably tasking her like oh when when are we gonna the next wendy richter Mula's like, oh, I can't find any girls. I'm trying really, really hard. You know, I can wear, I can, I can carry the belt for a while, and then Vince really doesn't want that. And probably, maybe he realizes, like, well, Mula's not going to let this grapple hold over the title go. I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit of that. But at the same time, too, maybe her priority to find somebody new in women's wrestling is, is very low because her as a performer, like, no, I'm the star. You don't need another star. I'm your star. And probably there is that difference of like, all right, well, I guess I got to just move on from all of this. If, you know, Mulu's not willing to let this stranglehold go. And that's probably why you see it just dissipate until they find a Lundra Blaze. Like, oh, we, we finally found somebody that that is extremely attractive, talented in the ring, and let's put her out there. Who can we put her out there against? Crap. Yeah. <laughs> Alundra doesn't have a Rolodex of girls that are in a compound in South Carolina just ready to go. We now, have step one nailed. <laughs> now, 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 I've, now I've got to make six different calls to six different women. Gosh, it's a lot easier. Uh, screw it. We don't have time for this because I'm going through a steroid trial. Uh, and then, you know, you bring it back again with, with, with Sable and you're like, all right, I got her on that. Who does she wrestle? Shit. Same problem as before. What did we do before? Hey, Moolah's still wrestling. Let's bring her in. So it's it it is that sense of it was just trying to make it easier. So if there would have been another, not that I would ever wish that there'd be another Billy Wolf, or not that I'd ever wish that another human being quite like Moolah with some of the alleged things she did. <laughs> if there was another one that Vince could probably call upon, you could have. But yeah, yeah. because Moolah had such a stranglehold over it. And prevented so many other women getting involved because, you know, you hear stories of of women saying, well, I couldn't get any bookings because people would only use Moolah's group of girls. So as Moolah's career is waning, her, you know, feelings towards finding the next star for her bookings is probably pretty low because she's trying to get herself bookings. Is it still like that at all today i mean i know it's not nearly as bad but i mean just with women's wrestlers kind of well you could take it in the sense of of me i'm focused on my career solely but i'm definitely on the the latter part of it but i have a lot of students that want to get out there and do things for them and you know i went out and you know did a lot of things for cedric because it was very new in my career and i was vibrant about it but at the same time too like why am I going to go out and get bookings for my students and then go through that whole rigmarole when I'm trying to get myself bookings? Mm-hmm. So 
I mean, I, I understand but, that and sense that and explain that as well. But also, too, I'm not holding down an entire genre of professional wrestling yeah. for my selfishness for my career. Also, you're at like you're still at a very good and you're still in great shape. You're still at a reasonable working age. You could do a full run in WWE. Mula here is like 73-ish. So it's insane that she wouldn't be looking out for the next young star. In fact, she could have managed the next young star where you could still be like the next star. You know, like you still have a run in you and she clearly doesn't. But her selfishness. Yeah. And and I don't mean that in a derogatory term. To be a star like Mula, you have to be very selfish. And you look at just the entire environment she came up in. If she didn't fight for herself every single step of the way through the tremendous amount of abuse, misogyny, and, and everything that was thrown in front of her path, you know, if she doesn't have those qualities that we are referring to in a negative term, if she doesn't have those qualities, she doesn't survive and thrive like she did. It's one of those things like you, you have to be almost messed up and enough of a dick to push yourself forward. And did you know, Nick, that Rob Feinstein doesn't edit out the weird part where he asks Mula if she or May want a water and if they need to go to the bathroom to just let him know? That's that's in the fucking shoot. That's pretty entertaining. So if you want uh, an example of how much of kind of an afterthought women's wrestling was in the Attitude Era, at 1999's No Mercy, Mula faced Ivory for the WWE Women's Championship and the 76-year-old Mula won, becoming the oldest women's champion ever. I don't know. That's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> it's right I there. Mean, she, I mean, and Ivory's going to give her a good match. A you know, good 48-second well, match. This is, this, <laughs> all right, and everyone who gets all pissy about exposing the business and, and losing its believability, you have a woman who, in her prime wasn't a very good wrestler who in her prime wasn't physically imposing now pushing 80 years old beating probably the best woman in the company at the time i would say her jacqueline you can't bitch about dick flips and then just accept this it it, it blows my mind she did lose the title back eight days later but still but also to something that i had a discussion with with a female wrestler one time um, I was talking about all of, like, the legends I've wrestled. Like, yeah. talking about wrestling Jerry Lawler and, you know, Kevin Nash. And, like, there, there's so many of them that are flooding through my head right now. But, like, I, I would talk about, like, wrestling all those people. And then, like, there was a situation. I'm like, well, I guess I'll wrestle Jerry, Jerry the King Lawler again. Yeah. And I remember that female wrestler going, like, you should be really happy that you get this opportunity to be in this spot that at any time somebody comes off of tv or there's a wwe hall of famer that wants to put on the tights one more time that they want to step in the ring with you because there is no female equivalent medusa's not wrestling a, a lot of the, a lot of the female wrestlers that a lot of girls grew up watching don't wrestle but you don't you don't see lita anymore wrestling unless it's in wwe like yeah. there's no girls that were of a high popularity wrestling on the uh, on the indie scene like that's just not happening so a lot of females are not getting the opportunity to wrestle some of their heroes which is something that i have done 
10, 20, 30 times over. And for someone like Ivory to wrestle somebody like the Fabulous Moolah, that's a big, big deal. That's something that she probably would have pushed for. And also, too, it's a great story. So it, uh, when, I, when I watched this match growing up as a kid, I, I bought it. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's pretty cool. Like, as a wrestling fan at that time, I was like, yeah, that's that's a good story. That's cool. And then now with the hindsight of probably the way Ivory feels about it, like, probably is like, man, I got to wrestle the fabulous Moolah. I, I can see that, and that is neat. But there has to be a cutoff. Uh, and it's it's not like it was like a one-off match. It was like a major pay-per-view for the title. Like, if Jordan came back to the NBA right now, I believe he could probably start on some teams because he's Michael Jordan. And I guess kayfabe-wise, that was Mula. But Michael's also, what, 50, 52 or something? Like, if... Julius Irving came back to the NBA. He should not have a roster spot, no matter how good he was. Or Larry, Bur- it's like there has to be like an age cutoff to keep it believable. Well, I I would disagree with that. I'm going to disagree with that hard because I wrestled the match with Sergeant Slaughter, who I believe was 72 at the time. Jeez, wow! And it was a weekend where he had a Friday and Saturday show, and I was wrestling him both nights. <laughs> and my one of my favorite things of my entire wrestling career was Sergeant Slaughter like kind of saw my he, I'd wrestled him before but it was very proto man scout era and when I wrestled him this weekend where we were wrestling on a Friday and a Saturday it was very much more refined so I was doing some of my stuff and then he was interacting and usually he's just there for the hot tag and comes in and does you know Cobra Clutch yeah, and he's yeah, good yeah. and that's it I'll never forget him walking in on that Saturday after we kind of wrestled he kind of seen, seen my character as soon as he walked in, he re- walked right over to me on that Saturday, and he goes, I've got a spot I want to do with you. <laughs> At 72, 72 years old, this man was excited because he saw something in me the night before and then thought about a spot he could do with me the next night. And just having that flair for it and love for it and wanting seeing somebody who's young and like, I, I, want, I want to do something with you because I like what you got going on. To me... That is the highest compliment I ever could have got from him. I mean, that's far more than him just giving a thumbs up. Like, good match. It was fun to fun to fun to wrestle with you. But for him to come up, like, I want to do a spot with or you, and it only works with you. Yeah. Like that. What means was the a spot? Lot. Do you remember? Because I'm really fucking curious. It was I. I it didn't work that well. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just like I go to give him a shoulder tackle and he doesn't bump, and I go to throw a punch. It was just one of the things where he just stood there like Superman. <laughs> just no sold everything. Yeah, no sold everything, and it, 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 it kind of came off a little weird because at the same time too, like I don't want to like shoulder tackle him that right. hard because yeah. I don't want him to actually fall down. Because <laughs> like if I go in and shoulder tackle somebody, I'm I'm bringing it regardless, uh-huh. especially if we're gonna do a spot where you're not. Going going down it's usually like from a bigger man that i'm gonna get in there but you're 72 years old and i'm trying to navigate not hurting you because i don't want to be the guy that hurts you (laughs) so i'm sure ivory felt the same exact way by wrestling the fabulous moolah because saying that you're going to wrestle the fabulous moolah on pay-per-view for the title is like saying you're going to wrestle hulk hogan for the title on pay-per-view i can't think of a wrestler that's going to turn that down but i can't think of a wrestling mother would say no to it but as a wrestling fan, 
I didn't like it. <laughs> and also, I would just like to say with Jake's point, I don't remember Moolah trying anything interesting or creative or anything and all her shit. So yeah. Sergeant Slaughter, fucking A, still trying to be That's, an artist, but Moolah was just like, man, it's I'm in Columbia. I think that may be the difference because Slaughter has this aura of believability where all he has to do is catch your ass in that Cobra clutch and he's putting you out. Or like you know, or like someone like Bruno, who probably could have wrestled to the day he died because he looked like a million dollars into his seventies. Mula was clearly elderly at this point. Like she was, she didn't wear it but, well, you know. But tough as nails. I mean, she was still out there doing it. I'll give it to her. Yeah. Tough, tough as nails. Like yeah. she always, she, but that's the way she always was. Even in her prime, is she was just as tough as shoe leather. Yeah, and yeah, sure. At times in her life, she looked like shoe leather. It's right there. I had to say it, but it's just this idea. Here's this tough woman that's going to take this young little thing and just throw her around like there's there's a, that aspect to it and, and you, she's always had that through her entire career so it's not much of a leap now at 70 to do the same thing so into the 2000s Mula would make sporadic appearances with wwe with her last ever being at SummerSlam august 2007 in a backstage segment with vince and william regal just months later Ellison died November 2nd, 2007, at the age of 84 in Columbia, South Carolina. According to her daughter, the possible cause of death was a heart attack or a blood clot related to a shoulder replacement surgery she had. That's Mula's career. And this is where we normally give our final thoughts and end the show. And holy fuck, we can't do that with Mula. Because pro wrestling isn't even half of what there is to talk about with her. So, on June 24th, 1995, Fabulous Moolah was the first female wrestler inducted into the Hall of Fame. And whether you love or hate her, think she was good or bad in the ring, there's no denying that she deserved it. That was hard to say. Uh... (laughs) She had a long career, and whether it was by her own design or stranglehold on the business, she was the champion for most of it. To my knowledge, no one protested her getting into the Hall of Fame, but this was pre-internet, pre-social media, and pre-Mullah's dark side coming to light. In March of 2018, WWE announced the Fabulous Moolah Memorial Battle Royal for WrestleMania 34, and the internet lost its shit. People lost their minds so much that the WrestleMania sponsor, Snickers, pressured (laughs) WWE to change it. Have a Snickers, Moolah. You ruin women's lives when you're hungry. That's that commercial they do. I know. She should just give it to all the people that she fucked up and they'd be happy. Which is, it's so funny that all of that came to light, like all this backlash of Moolah, I'll say came out of nowhere, but it is justified. Because for the longest time when people talked about the fabulous Moolah, and I've, I've been in the room and edited even more shoot interviews. And anytime the fabulous Moolah's name came up, the words that were always used were shrewd businesswoman. That was what everybody (laughs) said, shrewd businesswoman. And there was always that sense of respect. There was always that sense of, oh, she is, she's a shrewd businesswoman. She's got things that she wants to do and how she wants to do it. It was a little bit of a smile to people, but they also kind of know like, Yep, I would not want to deal with that woman (laughs) when it comes to business. And that was anything 
as far as it would go. There was not why I say, oh, she was fucking these girls over. There was there was never anything like that whatsoever that was brought up. It was always shrewd businesswoman. So there's like talking points going through the business. <laughs> it was a talking point. Oh, Mula, shrewd businesswoman. It's just like on fucking the news. Yeah. Like anytime her name came up, that's what everybody consensus always said about her. Nobody ever said abusive, never said that she did those girls wrong. Even sometimes when we talk to other females, you're like, oh, Mula, like... I love her to death, but for God's sake, she was tough to deal with. Like, that's that's what I always heard, and that was the rap on her. So the idea that everybody's like, fuck her, like, and just, she's the, she's a pimp, and all these others, it was very much kind of out of nowhere. Yeah, it's, it's that wording when you hear stuff like that, and you hear people say things such as that in life, where you're like, oh, there's a whole can of worms here that they don't want to get into, and they're just going to say this, and we're going to move on by for now. That's the thing about the term shrewd businessman or businesswoman. It's not like a blow through. It's it's always like Andrew Carnegie, shrewd businessman, used child labor to make his still industry. Like it was. It's not like good things when they when that label gets thrown thrown around. It's it's usually has some dark shit behind it. Yeah, like Thomas Edison. No, shrewd yeah. businessman stole half his shit and ruined lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it was, yeah, and that's that's basically what the country's been built off of. So, you know, Mula is no different than Andrew Carnegie and Thomas Edison. And but Mula didn't kill an elephant. So, can we give her that? <laughs> well, we'll see. Well, we'll get to that when we get to that. Okay. Oh yeah, the elephant boy. I forget. Oh, fuck. So that leaves the question: What about the fabulous Mula? Could be so bad. <laughs> What could this sweet old Southern Belle, pro wrestling's grandmother, possibly do that would be so bad? So we mentioned earlier that Mula got into training and booking. First with her husband, Johnny Long, and they were able to get their stable book through Jack Pfeffer. And to my knowledge, not many bad things come out of this era. But it was when Mula split with not just Jack Pfeffer, but also Johnny Long, that things seemed to change. Mula began training wrestlers with her new husband, Buddy Lee. By the late 1950s, Billy Wolf was out of business, leaving Mula and Buddy Lee free to take over the entire women's wrestling industry. I was always told that Mula trained the girls from the right side as opposed to the left side so that way all of her girls could only wrestle with her girls and they couldn't break out and wrestle other girls so if a promoter only wanted like all right i just want so and so i'll get two girls from moolah and i'll get two two of these other girls or two local girls i'll book them and bring them in they wouldn't work well because they'd be working opposite sides of the body so that's how Moolah kind of ensured her stranglehold over female wrestling was training these girls a certain way, which was opposite to what most people were going to train. So if like a guy found a woman, gave her some wrestling training and then went out there and put her in a ring with one of Moolah's girls, the match would be shit. And then, of course, the guy would be like, well, it's most certainly not Moolah's <laughs> girl's fault because yep. Moolah's got this reputation. This girl just started. She's just the shits because of that. Now it's very fluid and everybody's all trained from the same side and it's a little bit universal and transfers very easily. But that was what I always heard about Mula. She trained the girls a specific way so they could only wrestle each other. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. And <laughs> that's usually, that's 
that's that's something I always heard. Like after they would say, "Oh, shrewd businesswoman," <laughs> and this is one of the things that they they did. So with Billy Wolf out of the picture and having close ties to the McMahons, it was at this moment Fabulous Moolah held women's wrestling's infinity gauntlet in her hand. She could have been change and positivity. She could have pushed for equality. She had a chance to break the will, but she chose to become a spoke on it. And to me, that makes her even worse for all these things we're about to get into. Sure, Billy Wolf was an evil tyrant, but at least under him, women's wrestling was, like, really good. <laughs> uh, on par, if not better, than a lot of the men's matches of the era, you know, to today's standards. While Mula would preach the hair-pulling, slap-fighting bullshit that would make it even easier for promoters to degrade women's wrestling. But also, too, that's, uh, that could be an artistic choice. Uh, I think, you know... Billy Wolf was training these women to wrestle like men. Yeah, like men. And and then and obviously like their matches could be just as good as the men because they have a large repertoire. Where like Mula probably was like, ah, oh, let's just make it easy, let's just make it all hair pulling and then make it clearly different. So that way when they book the women, their matches look different than the men. So when you book my girls, you know you're gonna get this. And also, too, if you're a misogynist man, you're like, oh, these girls just are hair pulling and cat fighting around and just doing hair mares and throwing you around by the hair. They're going to like, yeah, this is more of what I, I want to see out of my female wrestling as opposed to them doing drop kicks and cross bodies and head scissors. Like, I already got dudes that can do that. So if you're a misogynist man, you're like, yeah, Mula gets it. <laughs> you know? She's a bitch. I like her. Yeah, she gets what I, the type of female wrestling I, I want as well. And we also talked about, I mean, back when, like, Ethel and Mildred, when they were doing it, they were talking about they were main event and they were selling fucking places out. Yeah. I mean, they were doing business, but uh, all the research that I saw, I mean, like, Cornette talks about how, like, Mula back then, they were just, they were part of the act. They were part of the show. That Mula wasn't main event and shit. They weren't bringing in people because they didn't, she wasn't putting butts in seats, as Jim said. Well, also, too, like, I'm, I'm sure Mildred Burke and Billy Wolf and the trainers that they had in their camp were probably better than Mula, and Mula True. just saw this right formula of the female wrestler who is the champion and then you have the man who's who's a wrestler and then they run things and the man opens doors but you're really kind of running stuff and you're also the champion and i'm sure you know Mula's husband was not the businessman that billy wolf was but he was obviously the same type of man that was sleeping with the women he was a piece of shit too. so you know Mula's like well i'll have to take over more of the billy wolf role and the mildred burke role here so she's just trying to see that she saw the formula on how to on how to do that and you'd be that one phone call that people wanted to just make when they wanted female wrestlers and it always always comes back to you know I, I've been listening to a lot of Disgraceland podcast and they always talk about artists coming from damaged childhood backgrounds and then they grow up to be a piece of shit and at the same time too it's not being said to you know excuse them for their behavior but it at least it explains it and you look at you know if Mula came up during this time and seeing how it was done and she was clearly trying to copy the same formula that Billy Wolf and Mildred Burke had copied it to a T and then put her own little abusive spin on it at the end of the day and you see it in uh, Mula's book too I mean she grew up poor and from a very early age she was like 
I don't like being poor. I'm not going to be poor. She found her formula. The money started coming in and it was like, fuck yeah, I will never be poor again. And I feel, and I feel that fucking sentiment yeah. a thousand percent. Like I have, I have been homeless. I have been on food stamps. And now that I, I sit myself in a little bit decent position, a couple things have come up that have threatened some things in my life. And I can't tell you the, the drastic measures that I would even go to, to ensure that, that my bills are paid and things are taken care of and the money continues to roll in. Now, granted, because I hate myself enough, much, most of the abuse and punishment is being put on me and not other innocent <laughs> individuals, but th there is still abuse and punishment, but I am uh, absorbing all of those blows. What we're saying is if me and Nick disappeared, check Jake's backyard. <laughs> Let's get into the moolah compound. The women who trained with Moolah lived on her property, so not only did they have to pay for training, they had to pay for room and board. That seems reasonable, right? However, Moolah made them stay on the property. If you wanted to be a women's wrestler, you were forced to pay Moolah rent, and that's where it gets kind of sketch. On top of that, for any woman that walked into Moolah's school in Columbia, South Carolina, Moolah owned them. Moolah could tell them what to wear, how to cut their hair, who they could hang out with, who they could be friends with. She even tried to control their sexuality, which we'll get into later. Then there's the booking. Moolah took 25% off of all the earnings if you were lucky. There are tons of girls that claim 35, 50%. And it's commonplace for bookers, agents, managers to take, I don't know, 10% when they're getting you jobs that you wouldn't have gotten without them that again seems very reasonable but sometimes moolah wouldn't tell the girls she was doing this judy martin and alani kai who are both huge moolah apologists by the way said that moolah would collect the women's pay from the promoters take a chunk of it for herself and then tell the girls that the remainder was all they got paid i mean the booking fee is something that's been around for a long period of time, and I've justified it time and time again. And a lot of people that I know have taken, like George South, was always told that he was taking a booking fee out. And as George has always sworn up and down, he goes, I told them ahead of time. Because George would always be like, look, I rented a 20-passenger van, 10-passenger van when WWF wanted extra talent for WWF superstars. They called me. And they said they wanted 8, 12, 15 guys. I picked you out of everybody else. I put you in the van and I drove you. You sat in the back and you slept. I drove you to the WWF locker room and put you in the locker room with Razor Ramon, Macho Man, whoever. And you're, you're, you're back here. I've given you an opportunity to wrestle on TV and be in the ring with some of these guys. And you, you will get paid. But I'm gonna need to take a little bit out, and I'm gonna make and I'm gonna make money off that. I will I will be making a profit off some of this money that I'm taking. It's not all gonna be like the money that I'm taking out is gonna cover solely just the van, and then that's it. No, 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 no. I'm making the money because it's my reputation. Because when one of you guys screw up, walk in the wrong door that you you were not supposed to, know what happens? I'm the one that gets yelled at. They don't yell at you. They yell at me. So. I will justify the booking fee. Now, obviously, taking it behind people's back is not ideal. Being upfront about it is, is, is ideal, and being the person that secures them being there. Now, 
None of these women were allowed to talk to promoters. None of these women were really allowed to leave. And back to the story of controlling who they can hang out with. I forget the woman's name, it was who, which female wrestler it was, but she was telling me a story about living on Moolah's compound. And she was dating Larry Zabisco at the time. And Moolah fucking hated Larry Zabisco. <laughs> Mostly because he was dating one of her female wrestlers. Yeah. So she saw it as, oh, she's going to hook up with Larry, then Larry's going to get her bookings. And then she's not going to be underneath my control. So Larry pulled up the compound to pick up this said female professional wrestler. And he just kind of, he pulled in with his Cadillac. It was, it was like a brand new Cadillac. And he, he pulled in and he was kind of like the nose of the car, which is kind of in the, in the garage a little bit, but not all the way in the garage, but you know, just like halfway in a little bit. Cause he was just running in and saying, hello, is so-and-so here? And then she gets in the car and they take off. Well, Moolah saw him pull in, and she hit the garage door button, so the garage door came down on his new oh, fucking Cadillac. <laughs> she's like, fuck him. Uh, and in my research, um, here, I'll, I'll read this. Uh, Wrestling Classics message board, dude named Crimson Mass, he mentions how Vern Gagne used to take a percentage of his trainee's wages. In Ric Flair's case, he had to get Wahoo McDaniel to speak with Vern for that to get discontinued. Buddy Rogers fired his manager, Jack Pfeffer, in 1951 because Rogers realized he could negotiate more money than Pfeffer could, and Pfeffer was taking 35%. And as Crimson put it, because he'd say it better than me, bottom line, it was kind of standard practice back then, but with Mullah's power and control, the girls probably got fucked worse. Yeah, And that's the thing, too. It even happens at the top. Like I was mentioning at the beginning of this podcast, yeah, you're a part of Capital Wrestling, but so-and-so runs Philadelphia, and then so-and-so runs Pittsburgh. And all of those people, they make their money, but they got to kick up to Vince Sr. for using the name Capital Wrestling. Yeah. So everybody, even the top people, the promoter of the town, the guy who secured the building, he's got to give a cut to the guy at the top. And then I'm sure the guy at the top, he's got to pay for state athletic commissions. And he's got to deal with all those other things, a promotion for his town as well. So everybody's kicking up and, and cuts are happening. So... Not fact, like the mafia at all. Yeah. So <laughs> all of these things, everybody's got to pay a cut. Everybody's got to pay a percentage uh, of everything. So Moolah taking money from these female wrestlers is going completely under the radar for so long because everybody's got to kick up to somebody. But I can understand the percentage thing. It's the not knowing that is the issue. Yeah, like agreed. when my girlfriend Spencer Taylor signed a contract to write for ABC's Mixedish this fall on ABC, she knew her manager was going to take 10% of that because without her manager, she's not writing for ABC. And that is the agreement. That's why it's profitable for Moolah to book these girls. Pump out 50 girls a night so that you get 50 commission checks. You know, it's just, just the sneakiness is what's frowned upon. And plus the percentage. I mean, half is your... That's a yeah, lot. I mean, that, 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 that is the thing is that she's not disclosing this. Like if she yeah. had a camp and she was going to train these girls and had it clearly laid out, this is the contract. These are the, exactly. the, the, the agreements. Don't like and, it. Don't be a wrestler. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, these are these are my terms and conditions. Yeah. And at the same time, too, how many people just click the the terms and conditions of iTunes yep. yeah. every single time? So I she she probably views it as as that. Like, yeah. listen, I told you ahead of time that I was going to do this and I was going to do this. But yeah, she probably wasn't as specific. And of course, I'm sure that percentage moved around yeah. a couple of times. And also, too, 
let's let's all not to defend Mula too much, but some of these girls could have over exaggerated. Like you took fifty percent of my money because I can't tell you how many times pro wrestlers like I deserve more. Yeah, there is a little bit of that. At the same time, too, I think there's a longer history of Mula kind of moving the goalpost multiple times. And there's just we're talking about all these other promotions that mostly involve male wrestlers, and it wasn't pretty much a fucking monopoly. Which, if you weren't with Mula and if you weren't doing that, you didn't have too many other options. Like try to hit up different territories. I mean, Mula knew her powers, so she had more of a fucking hold and more of an ability to abuse it. And since Mula controlled booking, if you had anything to say about it, she'd just stop booking you. Even worse, Mula would stop booking people that were getting over. Anyone that could possibly become a threat to Mula's stardom, girls that promoters were maybe asking for a little too often, Mula would just stop giving them spots. So, if Mula was so bad, why didn't the girls just leave? There are a couple of explanations. A, literally nowhere else to go. If you wanted to wrestle, you were a woman, you worked for Mula. And B, since the girls were barely getting paid, they had a serious debt to Mula over training fees, living expenses, food. Mad Maxine said that due to owing Mula both rent and training fees up to $1,500, the trainees went into debt and she controlled their lives. Debbie Johnson, another former trainee of Mula's, said that since she was giving Mula 30% of her booking fee and the rest of her paycheck basically went to living expenses, food, rent, utilities, Debbie worked for Mula for two years before she even got paid money. So all that, I would say, is arguably very true and provable. Toss in the screw job and Mula at best, kind of a scumbag. But here is where the story of Fabulous Mula not only gets arguably subjective and incredibly controversial, it gets very fucking dark. Over the years, various female wrestlers have come forward with stories accusing Mula of being a pimp. Now when you hear pimp, maybe you think of the godfather in a silly feather hat. But if the rumors of Mula are true, she was a sex trafficker, accessory to rape, and the fabulous Mula deserved to die in prison. To Mula's defenders, I'll say this. Just because someone treated you fairly or was kind to your face, it doesn't mean they're not capable of being a monster. Cosby was a role model to generations. Serial killers live normal lives. They make small talk at work. They hold doors open for old ladies. And the, the double life is part of their whole shtick. And I will say a lot of Mula's defenders were close to her. It's people that not only would she have not targeted, it's people who directly or indirectly, knowingly or unknowingly, would have benefited from Mula's underhanded tactics. We brought up on Luna's episode that in a 2002 interview, Luna Vachon said that at 16 years old, Mula sent her out of state to be photographed by an older man. And although she remained clothed during the photo shoot, Vachon said that she felt taken advantage of by Mula and this older man. Peggy Lee Leather, who is one of the people that Nigel Sherrod interviewed, who I don't, I still want to understand why he defends Mula so much. Peggy, in one of those interviews, said, oh, oh yeah, Dr. Goldstein, he liked wrestling, he liked the girls, and she makes him see it seem like a nice uh, situation, but just like, he liked wrestling, he liked the girls, that's always just, that's a red flag as fuck for me. The way Peggy put it, it was just an open offer. If you wanted to go, you could. It was just, it was all fun, Nick. <laughs> I mean, it could have been, but it's just, it's you, you never fucking know. Those situations are just, 
Luna also stated that her aunt Vivian Vashon witnessed Mula having sex with a lot of the female trainees. And, you know, if it were just two consenting women having some sex, who gives a shit? But one of the main problems with that is Sandy Parker, who was trained by Mula, was a lesbian. And she claimed that Mula wouldn't allow her to date women and attempted to force her to date men. Parker said this enraged her because, quote, because Mula was two-faced because she had her little dalliances that we all knew about. And there were more rumors of Mula having lesbian affairs. Uh, consensual, if they were consensual, who gives a fuck? But Mula publicly was an unapologetic homophobe. And if she was secretly having gay sex, she missed the boat on becoming a Republican senator. And, and then there's rumors of Mula forcing her girls to sleep with promoters and others. Penny Banner said, quote, Let's get this out of the way first so I don't have to dance around the subject. Mula was a pimp. From her sprawling 42-acre estate in Columbia, South Carolina, Mula would send her half-trained underage female wrestlers to photo shoots. That would be, by today's standards, considered pedophilia and pornography. She sent trainees to wrestling promoters in set numbers, renting them out in bulk, with the understanding that the girls would have sex with the promoter and the wrestlers on the roster who wanted them. Promoters liked free sex, but what they also liked was for the boys to not go outside looking for it and possibly running into trouble. Uh, sex on the road with a steady and pliant group of semi-attracted women in return for money is what Mula offered. The women were sent out on these tours and were not told about this arrangement ahead of time. They found out on the road those that refused to have sex with the promoters and wrestlers were raped. Now, if you watch the Vice thing on Mula, you saw Princess Victoria, who clearly stated Mula sent her out to a guy in a clear attempt to pimp her out uh, and apparently Victoria just turns it down, but the attempt was clearly made, and then she turns around and chastises people for calling Mula a pimp. It makes no sense. It's the one of the weirdest parts of the whole fucking thing. I don't understand this. <laughs> and I, I can't. So she couldn't be called a prostitute. Exactly. Exactly. It, I know, but she lays out the entire reason why. Yeah. <laughs> like it makes no fucking sense. She basically told a story of why we of a story we could pass on, but then she says to quit spreading <laughs> fucking rumors. Never mind. <laughs> I can't speak for any of these women, but mentally, when you're a victim, it changes you. You know, there are some victims that refuse to admit it, the pain, the shame of all of it. So they lash out with anger or, or tears. Like, look at cults, look at studies of people in long term mental and physical abuse. People, they don't want to feel duped and they usually deny it and get very angry when it's brought up, which, if you watch the Vice thing, a common theme. We will end with the most notorious and brutal accusation against Mula in the case of Susie Mae McCoy, known as Sweet Georgia Brown. And I'm more inclined to believe this one because out of all of them, Georgia Brown was a black woman in the South in the 50s and 60s. If someone was going to be seen as less than by Mula or anyone else, it would sadly be Georgia. So Georgia Brown was trained and booked by Mula and her husband, Buddy Lee. If you remember from our episode on Babs, Marva, and Ethel, African-American women were showstoppers in the 50s. Headliners, big draws. Sweet Georgia Brown was no different. She rose to stardom in the territories. She was booked strongly. She made a ton of money. 
and there was Moolah there to scoop it up. It was said that Moolah would give Georgia alcohol and drugs and an intentional attempt to make her addicted so she could control her. Georgia was regularly beaten, and Brown told her daughter that she was often raped. It's believed that Buddy Lee is the father of one, if not more, of Georgia's kids, and Georgia was reportedly forced into sexual acts with promoters. She'd often come back off the road pregnant. She left the wrestling industry in 1972, broke financially and mentally, traumatized by her years with Moolah. Georgia Brown would spend the rest of her life in fear of relationships with men and white people. She'd spend the rest of her life desperately trying to piece back together some semblance of normalcy while Moolah thrived in WWF, unabashedly leaving a trail of broken women and broken dreams in her wake. Sweet Georgia Brown's son... Michael McCoy is an interesting person. He shows up on the Dark Sides of the Ring documentary, and he has a statement where he's like, I have no reason not to believe anything that I heard. But then there's a Nigel Sharaj YouTube interview where his basic stance is, is that he met Moolah, and the person that I met wouldn't do that. The person that I met was kind and nice, and there's no way she could have done that. And this is the type of thinking that drives me fucking nuts, that if one person is nice to you, that they couldn't have done anything horrible. Like Nick said, people like this have certain ways they know how to exploit, they know how to handle it. And it's it's, it's crazy how easily someone can be kind of manipulated just by offering them food or a drink or just being fucking kind to them. And, I mean, I know Michael's got his own things to go through, so I don't really know, but it's just, it, was, it was weird to see his YouTube interview that was kind of... Just defending the shit out of Moolah just because she was nice. It's well, I, I, That's a situation I'm going through right now. A guy who I worked very closely with, who I considered a friend, came out that he was charged with five counts of sexual assault on a, on, on a minor. He's already pled guilty and the wheels of justice have already turned, but he would have been the last person in the world that I would have guest would be doing anything that salacious that dark that wrong because he was a nice hard-working individual who i felt was very similar to myself and that's fucking scary so if your justification for moolah not being a dirtbag is because she was nice to you is is incorrect and what people do behind closed doors is completely different and you can only hope for the best that when you meet somebody that they're not something is dark and angry and this is something that I, I this is this podcast recording comes up in a weekend where i have to debate all of this so it's it's very very raw for me in my mind and just to kind of take some of the points that you discussed and some of the this abuse that we've talked about here in this section starting starting backwards you know with sweet georgia brown i remember when we did the episode with Ethel and Babs and I, I, I talk to George South as I always do for every episode that we do. The name Sweet Georgia Brown came up when I was talking about uh, African American female wrestlers in the South. He brought up Sweet Georgia Brown and just the look on his face. He goes, "Nobody will ever know all of the things that she had to go through just to be a professional wrestler, and she was the nicest person I ever met. But I could see that she was going through." A tremendous amount of strife and abuse. Damn! It just—I've never seen him just. You know, he's very jovial. He's—he's—he's he's, he's, always feels like he's doing a bit of some sort. But when I brought up her name, it was like stone serious. 
So I don't know. I don't know what what he, he's heard or know, and he would never share with me. The accusations of Mula sleeping with some of her students, as you said, Nick. If it's consensual, fine, great. And I always heard that Mula and May they were a couple. Oh. I I always heard that, and, and I've heard many female wrestlers that were like say the words like, "Well, if it doesn't work out with this guy, and it doesn't work out with you and your guy, let's just." Run off and be Mula and May Young, <laughs> you know, because we'll just we'll just live in South Carolina and we'll be together. We'll be like the Golden Girls. That was just that was commonplace. Yeah. And then also too, if you know you're not required to date men, you know, unless you're on the road and being paid to, yeah. you know, and, you, and you're stuck on this compound, you're gonna you're gonna bond with these. It's almost like prison in a sense. So you have these other attractive females with good bodies that just kind of happens yeah and you know if mula saw that like oh these girls are buddying up and they can gang up against me she could probably use sex to be created as a wedge and it all comes back to a power dynamic and that's another sense of control you know but we don't want to think about that and then the, the accusations of you know taking pictures for this guy or this guy this is all pre-Twitter. This is all pre-social media. As we know from Jordan Grace's two-volume book series of DMs from a female professional wrestler, <laughs> female wrestlers are contacted directly and offered to do weird and gross shit all the time. <laughs> all the time. So in a world where that doesn't exist, where you can get a direct line to these girls, oh, but wait... We have a direct line in a woman by the name of the fabulous Mula. So I'm sure a lot of those requests ended up on Mula's desk. And being the person who's obsessed with money and profit, and this guy is offering money for acts, pictures, whatever gross things. I mean, I wouldn't even put it past her if some guy was like, hey, I would really like the socks. Yeah of Penny Banner that maybe some girl's socks came up missing from time to time. Certain pieces of gear, boots. Oh, oh you want to take pictures of the girls? Like, I, I can only imagine the things that would come up. And and also, too, you know, some of these girls are defenders. You know, some, some of these girls that I know that get these offers laugh it off and like, all right, you want pictures of my feet? hundred bucks. PayPal comes in for a hundred bucks. All right, you get pictures of my feet. It's feet. I I've I've assisted girls in <laughs> taking pictures of their feet so they could go make that money. Did you get a cut? No, I just did it because I'm a friend. <laughs> I, I would I would never I would never get a cut. I'm that was a joke. I know it was a joke. I know it was a joke. To that point, I'd say that if it was a consensual contract, I don't even care if it was full-blown prostitution. If a guy was like, I'll give you $1,000, we're going to bang, the girl says, all right, whatever. But That's the, fine, whatever. Yeah. It, it's like the booking fee thing. Did they know they were being shipped off to Arizona or whatever? Yeah, absolutely, and, that, and that's that's where it gets a little sketchy. And I, I, always, I always fucking hated this comment from the honky-tonk man. He always said that... <laughs> Which one? <laughs> I like where this is going. <laughs> he used to say that the only reason that females were in the business was so they could have sex with the boys. So it's, you know, like, I'm sure there were some women that when Mula was like, I need you to go take care of the promoter, they're like, shoot, great, love it. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. But then there are women there, like we 
detailed at the beginning. They were like, hey, I'm just trying to provide for my family. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to make some money. I'm not here to fuck anybody. For fuck's sake. Like, I know I'm attra- attractive and, and there, and it might be one of the more attractive girls in the entire camp or like whatever of the four girls, like this one girl that wants nothing to do with it. That just happens to be that guy's favorite type of girl. Yeah. And she's like, no, but you can sleep with these other three. They clearly are willing. I don't want to be involved. And and that's where, where it always, it always comes in as well. It, it's, it's taking people's dreams and leveraging it into stuff they don't want to do. And as a person, you have to decide what you want to do. Because I know some women that have reluctantly took pictures of their feet because they're like, well, I got to fucking eat. I got to fucking, I got to make that fucking money because at the time that I was assisting this girl to take pictures of her feet, bookings were not that great. Like, well, I can make money right now and I can go take care of my car right now if I do this. Yep. So I'm just going to go get this money and go do this. I really don't want to do this. I just want to be a wrestler. And I would like to be a wrestler and be respected, but fuck, I got to go do this. And now there's a whole generation of girls that don't have to because there's all kinds of opportunities. And I'm thankful for that, that they don't get to see that, that darker side of wrestling because really they're only one or two generations removed from that. I would say only one generation removed from that. Girls from NXT and some of the better indie girls right now are just one generation removed from having to resort to methods like that to make money. And I'm not saying that pervs just came out of nowhere. They've been around for a very, very long time. And we're just talking about stuff that's reported and that these girls knew about. Like I'm saying, maybe there was a pair of socks or two that went missing, a pair of underwear that went missing. I, it, that makes it even darker and even seedier and we're just discussing the big stuff not to mention the littler stuff that yeah. I can only imagine happening because I understand perverts because they've approached me as well so get it it's gross alright final thoughts on the fabulous moolah well I've spent moments in this episode defending her and her actions I've spent moments explaining. I've spent mo- moments condemning. And that is just the muddled history of the fabulous Mula is and I think that's that's worth a deep dive debate. Maybe me and Jim Cornette can argue about that for <laughs> as opposed to other things in professional wrestling on whether or not Mula was good for professional wrestling and female professional wrestling most specifically. Answer is, I don't know. When I now will hear people say, oh, Mula, shrewd businesswoman. I know that there's a much darker cloud over that as opposed to somebody who was smart and saw an opportunity and took it when it was an entrepreneur. Um, I think I now will look upon that that phrase as a talking point for something much, much, much darker. I can't begin to imagine her struggle as a woman in wrestling in the time period she was part of. I can't relate to it. I can't understand it. And I'm sure her life was very difficult from losing her mother at an early age to getting the humanity crushed out of her by the industry. I can try to give Mula her dues for keeping women's wrestling afloat and for giving women jobs 
But even if 0% of her accusations were true, from the money to the sex crimes, the art of women's wrestling still suffered under her watch. Like We mentioned the in-ring ability in the Mildred Burke, Ethel Johnson days was far superior than 90% of the women who came out of Moolah's school, which I don't want to hate on those women who were trained by Moolah. They were trained by Moolah. It's not their fault. They still worked hard. They still took the bumps, broke the bones, the blood, the sweat, the tear. They were just part of a system that failed them. Like, Mula was never a great wrestler, and I think that's part of why she wanted a stranglehold on the industry. She was never going to rise to the top with her ability. Now, even if some of Mula's accusations are true, which I personally believe some, if not all of them, are, she is one of, if not the most vile, evil human beings to be part of pro wrestling, Chris Benoit included. She is deplorable. She is wicked. And I feel bad for her victims because that's what the women who showed up to her school in Columbia are, victims. You can even take away all the crazy rape and pimp rumors. At her best, Moolah destroyed careers and she destroyed lives. Fuck WWE for considering to honor her. Fuck Vince for giving her a lifetime of wealth and power. Fuck you if you defend her. Pro wrestling and the world is a better place with Lillian Ellison's bones in the ground. It's it's weird because <laughs> Mula is really fucking nice. <laughs> if you see, I watched the Wrestling Talk public access show, all 45 fucking minutes of it. And I was seriously laughing to myself because I was like, Mula's really fucking nice. <laughs> and I get it because people are so easily fucking won over. They're so easily won over because sometimes they just don't want to believe it or they just don't have the ability to. They haven't experienced enough or learned enough about people to know that you can smile in someone's face and stab them in the fucking back and then grind it in. I think Mula had a lot of kind words from old timers, men back in the day, because that's not who she took advantage of. Mula had her women and she knew how to control them. And the men respected the fuck out of her because she was getting paid in a business that was run by 99% dicks and Mula was crushing it. So, of course, Tommy Rich is going to defend her and say, oh, she wasn't a pimp. She was a businesswoman. And my whole first thought on that was like, isn't being a pimp straight up business? <laughs> yeah, there's some things we didn't even touch on. Like, look up the article about her daughter, Mary, who Mula had a warrant out for child abuse when she was 15, saying that she was wrestling with a fucking burst appendix. Then go on Nigel's uh, interviews and listen to Mary talk about it because she does say it was all a big mix up. And that just sounds... I mean, it's just, it goes back to the whole thing of she's made peace with her with her mom. She loves her now, but just like back then, probably yeah, some fucked up stuff happened, and she even admits it. She talks about how she did she did know she was second to wrestling, and it's just these little things that pop up more and more when I was doing research that I found out. And then looking at everything, seriously, go to Nigel's page, listen to all the other interviews with the women that defend her. Because I'm, I'm big on getting both sides of the story because I th do think people just jump on shit. But it comes down to, I don't trust fucking Nigel at all. Every little thing that is said negatively about Moolah, he will defend to his dying day. 
I will not believe someone who says someone is the greatest fucking person in the world and says everything nice they did, every decision they made was good, and I don't trust the fucking person that says someone was pure fucking shit and never did anything good because you clearly have an agenda and you are not going to put one little 1% of saying that they were 1% good or 1% bad. It's so obvious that he has an agenda. It's fucking weird. But, I mean, there's lots of women that do defend her and say even like the compound and the rent and all this stuff wasn't true and just look look all the research that i went through i think that moolah with buddy lee because there are people that can even make the argument that uh the sweet georgia brown stuff was only with buddy lee and it wasn't around moolah's uh time but i think moolah took advantage of the girls back in the day i think she knew it was easier to get away with I think there. I mean, there's less ability. There's less press. There's. I mean, clearly there's not internet. I mean, there wasn't really internet in the '80s, but word would travel easier. It would get around. And I think once probably some words started getting spread, Mula knew she had to tighten up her ship, and she knew throughout the '80s. I think Mad Maxine might be the only exception who talked about who talked shit about her in the '80s. But I think all the other ones, you look back and it's like 70s, 60s. And I think it was a whole lot easier back then. And Moolah knew it. And when she had to be good, she did. And one of the things I'm most shocked about is how Moolah didn't end up in a fucking John Waters movie. Because with line delivery and shitty charisma on par with Mink Stoll, Moolah just, God, she was so boring. Can I just fucking get across how boring she fucking was? But uh, she would have killed in a John Waters movie. And Nick, did you know that Moolah would like that water now? (laughs) All right. That is our episode on Fabulous Moolah. We are at TimBellPot.com, TimBellPot on all the social media. You can find me at Nick Olesa on the social medias. Manscout Manning on all the social medias for Jake. Micah is Trotter 27 on the Twitters. Yay. Uh, you can support our podcast by donating to our Patreon, which I will still 35% of. Or you can support us for free by leaving us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. You know there is some percentage of a chance literally none of this is true, and she was a fucking saint. Close quote. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Tim Bell Pod. If you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash Pod. There you can find bonus content, t-shirts, Manscout Manning DVDs. You can even tell us who to cover in a future episode. That's patreon.com slash Pod.